Good evening. Thank you so much for tuning in. I was born in Nuremberg, Germany. My dad was in the Army, and while he was stationed there for the year and a half or two years, we saw all the major highlights of Europe. My mom and dad took advantage of the opportunity to be over there and decided to do as much sightseeing as they possibly could. And so we hit all the major highlights, the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, Buckingham Palace, and I don't remember any of it. I, I fell out of the car in Paris, at least I was told. I was acting like I was driving the Volkswagen Bug that we were in. It was stationary, it was parked, and uh, I fell out and knocked myself out, I guess. Maybe that's why I don't remember. I think maybe the better explanation is because I was so young. I don't remember any of these sites, and I, I wish I did, but thankfully my mother kept volumes of photos and albums that I could sort through and see all the places that they visited. And one of the more interesting places, one of the more, more interesting sites was the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Pisa, Italy. Maybe you've seen pictures of this. It was built, at least started to be built back in 1173, and the goal was to build a separately standing bell tower for the cathedral in that city. And this magnificent structure was to be eight stories or 185 feet tall. And although construction began in 1173, it took almost 200 years to complete it. Constructed of marble and lime and stone, the tower was built in a circular ditch at a depth of five feet. And it was built on ground consisting of clay and shells and fine sand. And that proved to be costly because the foundation was not uh, solid enough to hold such a massive structure. The weight of the tower, which contained seven bells, one of which weighed over three tons, was just too heavy for the ground upon which it was built. And it didn't take long for the tower to start leaning. By the year 1272, with only three stories completed, the tower had already started to lean one degree. And over the next 90 years, the tilt increased to over 1.6 degrees. And the lean was very apparent at this point, so much so that the, the workers started to seek a solution. And many, many things were tried, but nothing could correct the problem. Today, because of the foundation, the Tower of Pisa is in danger of toppling to the ground. And again, it's all because it was built on such shaky ground. My friends, it doesn't matter what you build on a bad foundation. You can build the most beautiful structure known to man, but if the foundation is faulty, it will never stand the test of time. And that brings me to the series that we are going to begin tonight and will carry out through the next three or so weeks. It's called Adequate and Equipped. And I'm hoping that this series will help us to be better Bible students in the new year. We start by building on the proper foundation. You know, in contrast to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you have the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. Well-known architect Frank Lloyd Wright was commissioned and given the challenge of designing this hotel in one of the most earthquake-prone cities in the world. And Wright didn't just throw together some plans. No, he did some extensive research, and he came up with the idea to float a 60-foot layer of mud under the hotel. 
This would provide a solid support and act sort of like a shock absorber for the immense structure. It wouldn't be long before Wright's ingenious idea was put to the test. Because shortly after completion of the Imperial Hotel, Tokyo sustained one of the worst earthquakes in its history. Many of the buildings surrounding the hotel toppled to the ground, but Frank Lloyd Wright's architectural scheme proved to be successful. It withstood the violent earthquake all because of the solid foundation upon which it was built. You know, Paul discusses this very thing with Timothy. I want you to notice what is written in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It reads, But I realize, or but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them there are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose uh, the, the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, but as Janus's and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, it's, it's easy to read a passage like this and say, well, yeah, that's how the world is. Always has been, always will be, seems to be getting worse, doesn't seem to be getting any better. But Paul's words to Timothy here are not a commentary on the state of the world. They're a warning concerning the Lord's church. And it's not just the old sore head in the pew that gripes about everything that you've got to worry about. Some are church leaders, some are elders, some are preachers, some may even be Bible class teachers. But they talk a good game, they put on a good front, they hold to a form of godliness, it says. And this is scary, especially when you consider that these last days that Paul is talking about, we're in them. I mean... It's the days that we are living in now and the days that we'll be living in until Christ returns. And I think there's a tendency to read verses like this and say, well, yeah, you know, we need to stay the course and we need to stay away from, from people like that. But if you read through this list, these are all very common sins in our culture, even among people that would consider themselves Christians. I mean, you think about it. Are we not all susceptible to being lovers of money? How many of us can be boastful or arrogant? Gossip is a huge problem, even within the church. We all lack self-control at times. I think we all love pleasure. We can certainly be treacherous and reckless and conceited. These are not the sins of the wicked elite. These are sins that even affect Christians, people in the church. And it all begins with a lover of self. Paul continues in verse 14 and following. You, however... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, 
knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In the midst of these difficult times that Paul is talking about, in the midst of the times when the so-called righteous will be very unrighteous, Paul says, go back to your foundation. Remember what got you here. Find your compass. Remember which way it points. The compass points you towards the truth. It guides you in the darkness. Paul says that all Scripture, all Scripture serves a fourfold purpose for doctrine or teaching, what's right, for reproof, what's not right, for correction, how to get right, and for training in righteousness, how to stay right. Paul is exhorting Timothy to cling to God's word when the world around you is going off the rails. Go back to your foundation. Build on that, not on the shifting sand of society. That's how you make a difference, by being adequate and equipped for every good work because you're following the compass, because you're building on the proper foundation. There are four major points to Bible study. You have observation, you have interpretation, you have application, and you have meditation. Observation is laying the foundation. Interpretation is building the proper structure on that foundation. Application is living in the structure, living in harmony with God's will. And the meditation is praying and reflecting on what God would have me to do and be. We must get the foundation right if we ever want to build anything solid. Observation is never the goal, though. And that's important to point out. We can never stop at just observation. You're not just laying the foundation and calling it good. You will not have proper interpretation or application, though, if you don't start with observation. So it is the starting point. Again, it's the foundation, but it's not all that's involved. And all of these go hand in hand. They all tie together. You can't have one without the other. You know, if I observe the book of Revelation, and as I'm observing the book, as I am taking that 30,000-foot view of the book of Revelation, if I determine that it was written in literal language, then it's going to affect my interpretation and application, right? We have doctrines like premillennialism and dispensationalism, the rapture. These are all ideologies that are formed by observing a literal interpretation of Revelation, which I believe is incorrect. I believe that Revelation is written in apocalyptic language. And so if we get the observation wrong, if we lay the wrong foundation, then we're going to build on wrong ideologies. It must be understood that observation, interpretation, application, again, they all tie together. They are not isolated steps. One builds on the other. And you can take the Ethiopian eunuch, for example, in Acts chapter 8. We see that he was reading from the book of Isaiah. However, he does not know how to interpret what he is reading. And so Philip is sent onto the scene to help him to discern the Scriptures. The eunuch went away rejoicing after having Christ preached to him and being baptized because interpretation helped him open the Word of God. It helped him to understand. Observation has to do with getting the bigger picture. You know, the Ethiopian eunuch understood 
that what he was reading was the prophet Isaiah, but he couldn't discern any more than that, and so he went to interpretation, had to have some help there, and then he applied it by being baptized. Observation is what do I see? What is the overall theme? Who is the author writing to? What is his message? This can be done for every book of the Bible, and it should be, but even for each chapter in each book of the Bible. For instance, what is the overall theme of the book of Hebrews? And then, what is the overall theme of Hebrews chapter 11? We don't build a house by digging random holes. We make plans, we have measurements, we draw up blueprints, and then we begin the dirt work. We dig the, the footing, or we lay the foundation to be built upon. We must have a sturdy foundation if we're going to build a proper structure. The psalmist prayed, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. The psalmist was asking God to, to give him the power to observe, to have insight, to give him the insight necessary to really see what God was saying. So, observation is the 30,000 foot view. And when it comes to observation, we're talking about how we approach Scripture. And folks, that means everything. Some people approach Scripture like it's a rule book, like it's a code of conduct, like it's a legal document. And certainly there are rules to be followed that are written within Scripture, express implicit rules that we are not able to negotiate on. But the Bible is not to be read like a rule book or like a legal document. It's more than that, so much more than that. Some people read the Bible like it's a self-help book. Some people read the Bible like it's Siri. You know, just go to the Bible and ask it a question and, you know, find the answer. Any of life's questions are found there in the Bible. And to some degree, that's true, but we can't read the Bible as just simply a self-help book or as Siri. Some people read it just for devotional thoughts. I pluck out a passage here and there that's inspirational, slap it on a coffee mug, a bumper sticker, or something like that, and it inspires me. But here's the deal. The Bible is an autobiography. That's what it is. It's a story about God written by God. It's a story of redemption. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. And everything that's sandwiched between is a story of redemption. It's a story about God seeking to buy his people back. So when you read the Bible, read it with the idea that this is a story about God. It is a story about God's people. And it is a story about you because you are grafted in. You become a part of this story at baptism. Now, when it comes to observation, there are some hazards that we need to avoid. For instance, we want to avoid proof texting. We've talked about this before, and I'm sure you've heard this term. Proof texting is when I go to the Bible to find a piece of Scripture that proves my point. And some people use the Bible like that. It's just a weapon. And I have my belief, and I go to the Bible, and I pick out a verse that, that you know, uh, confirms my belief or affirms what I'm thinking at the time. Don't use the Bible as a proof text. Also a hazard to avoid is hunting and pecking. We do that sometimes. We, we just search for the, the main scriptures, we think. You know, the 
the scriptures that really matter, like the ones on baptism. And, and we hunt and we peck our way through scripture, just plucking out those ones that we think are the most important. You got to accept the Bible as a whole. It's a story, so you got to read it as a story. Another hazard to avoid is reading the Bible backwards. And that's sort of like proof texting in that we have our minds made up about something and then we go to the Bible to confirm that. So we have this certain philosophy or ideology and we go to the back of the Bible to the concordance and we look up scriptures that might even you know, faintly resemble what we think we believe. That's not a good way to study scripture either. And another hazard to avoid is removing the Jewishness from the text. We've got to understand the Jewish influence here. We have to understand that Israel is a big part of this story. So we can't just make it about us and not make it about Israel. You know, there's a three-level narrative to Scripture. If you watch the podcast series that Fred and and Sam Dominguez and I did, um, I guess it's been about a year ago, you might remember that we talked about the three-level narrative of Scripture. You have the top level, which is the story of God. You have the mid-level, which is the story of God's people. And you have the base level, which is the story of individual people that God uses. And so when we talk about the three-level narrative of Scripture, this is what we're talking about. It can really be broken down like that, top, mid, and base. And then we move on to, in observation, guardrails. There are certain guardrails or boundaries that we need, sort of like hazards, but these are things that we need to use to keep us in check when we go to studying the Bible, or really even just before we start studying, just our approach to Scripture. And some of these guardrails are, for instance, no code cracking. The Bible isn't a code to be cracked. Please understand that we're not trying to invent the wheel with Bible study. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. While the Word of God will always be fresh and new for those who are discovering it the first time, and while we will always find something new each time we dive into study, the purpose of Bible study is not to come up with something that no one's ever heard before. Take it as it is. Secondly, we've already mentioned this, no proof texting. Again, make certain that when you study the Bible, you're not just doing it to find support for your ideology. We don't study the Bible to find support for our patriotism or to facilitate our philosophical arguments or agendas. Our beliefs do not shape our study. Rather, our study shapes our beliefs. The purpose of our study is not to provide a differentiation between you know, denomination or sex. The, the purpose of our study is not to find support for any institution of man or any congregation. Notice I said that's not the purpose of our study. It may be a natural result of, the, of our study, but that's not the purpose. If we are studying God God's word with the intent of doing his will, then we will most assuredly find ourselves practicing what is taught. But don't get the cart before the horse here. The Bible is not a proof text for our arguments. The purpose of Bible study is to allow God's word to shape what we believe, how we behave, and how we interact with other people. It's not the other way around. Someone once stated it this way. Becoming part of the body seemingly became the object of faith rather than the byproduct. And that is so often true. And the last thing I would say about guardrails is no contradicting. 
This one seems pretty obvious, but it's astonishing how many Christians believe things that aren't in the Bible or that are a direct contradiction of what is in the Bible. Some examples would be the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, maybe the faith-only doctrine. We can never read into Scripture a meaning that violates the consistency of God's Word. A passage cannot mean today what it was never intended to mean in the first place. Remember, the Bible is one continuous story. Any meaning that violates the consistency of that story or contradicts that story should be rendered erroneous. We must also remember that there is a goal to Bible study. There should always be a strategy and a goal, an end goal that we're working toward. And it's not just to read through the Bible in a year. Now again, I don't want to diminish these read through the Bible in a year plans, and I don't want to say that if you're doing that, that's wrong. Not at all. I think those plans are great, and reading through the Bible in a year is a worthy goal. But you're not just doing this to read or to get through it. You're not just doing this so that you can say, hey, I read through the Bible in a year. You know, the, the goal is going to be application, which we'll get to later in this series. The goal of any Bible study is transformation, Right? The goal is not just information. Knowledge isn't the goal. Many people, many Christians know the Bible. They've studied it in order to gain knowledge so that they can affirm what they believe or so that they can argue and debate with others or so they can teach a class or preach a sermon or maybe even condemn those who don't think like they do. And some of these are good things. Some of them, not all of them, but that they're not the goal either. The goal of Bible study is application for the purpose of transformation. Information can make you smarter, but it won't make you holier. So it's not just about reading it. You've heard me say it over and over again. It's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you know. Who cares if you know the Bible forwards and backwards? Who cares if you can quote it from memory? Who cares if you have a PhD in biblical studies? Are you living it? That's what it amounts to. That's the ultimate question. You know, Jesus picked 12 men who didn't have any initials behind their names to start a revolution. So don't think that knowledge is the goal and don't think too highly of yourself if you have a lot of knowledge. We're not trying to get a bunch of biblical fatheads in here. What we're trying to do is to incite transformation. A high biblical IQ means nothing if the knowledge doesn't translate into action. Now, that being said, there are some principles of observation that I want us to think about. When you're reading through Scripture, Think about these principles. The first one is to read thoughtfully. Scripture does not yield fruit to the lazy or the thoughtless. So you got to have a method to this madness. When possible, start at the beginning of a book and read through to the end. If you can read the entire book in one sitting, then do that because I believe wholeheartedly in reading bigger chunks of the Bible. What happens all too often is we just read really small uh, chunks like uh, you know, bite-sized portions, maybe just a verse here and there or maybe you know, just a, a short chapter or a few passages. If you can, get the entire context by reading the entire book. If you can't read the entire book in one sitting, then maybe just read a few chapters or maybe even a chapter or two, but try to read bigger chunks. Don't just pick out a few verses. You know, if you're going to sit down and, and read the entire book of Philemon, that's not too difficult. 
If you want to try to read uh, all of Genesis in one sitting, that's going to be a little more difficult. You're going to have to carve out some more time, right? But let's say you start with uh, the shorter books of the Bible. Start with Philemon, for instance. Read the chapter and think about these questions. This would be related to reading thoughtfully. How would you summarize the book's message in one sentence? What can you find out about the relationships between Paul and Onesimus and, and Philemon? What feelings might be involved with each person? What issues does the book speak to? Why is this book significant? Why is it included in the Bible in the New Testament? Just some examples of principles of observation when it comes to reading thoughtfully. Secondly, read repeatedly. If you're like me, I can read something and get past it and then not even remember what I read. I have to read some things more than once, sometimes more than twice. And that's okay. As long as you're understanding what you're reading, if it takes five times, the goal is to understand it. So read repeatedly. Read it over and over. You cannot exhaust the riches of Scripture because you find something new every time. Repetition is crucial to understanding. Repeated and constant exposure to God's Word is an important aspect of observation. So be patient with Scripture and be patient with yourself so that you can derive the full benefit. And then I would say read prayerfully. Pray before you start studying the Bible. Pray while you're studying the Bible. You come to some passage or some verse that you don't really understand, stop and pray about it. You come to a passage that kind of makes you, you know, convicted, stop and pray about it. And then read, uh, read through it and then afterwards, pray again. Read prayerfully. Also, read imaginatively. Imagine the setting. Imagine that you're there. Put yourself in, in Peter's position, for instance. You're out on the water. You've denied Jesus three times. You're down and depressed, and you look up and you see Jesus on the shore making breakfast. Put yourself in, in his shoes, his sandals. How would you feel in that moment? What would that be like? What would he be going through? Read imaginatively. Read a passage in several different translations. Write it in your own words. And lastly, read purposefully. Here are six helpful hints to help you in reading purposefully. Number one, who? Who are the people in the text? And what are they saying? Number two, what? What is happening in the text? And, and what are the events? Number three, where? Where is all this taking place? Number four, when? When is all this taking place? Number five, why? Why is it taking place? And number six, wherefore? So what? We're going to talk about that a lot in this series. So what? It's the question of application. What difference would it make if I applied this verse to my life? You see, as we've said before, the Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for, uh, it was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. And so you have to understand who the original audience was. What were the circumstances surrounding what was being said? What would the people in the audience have been hearing? Cultural context means a lot. And so when it comes to observation, these are things that we need to think about, things that we need to consider. And I would close with this. Are you a butterfly or a bumblebee? You know, a butterfly has beautiful markings. It dances gracefully from flower to flower. It is beautiful and majestic. And then you have the bumblebee, which is more of the worker the business-like, straightforward bumblebee. 
It has that approach to, to, to life while the, the butterfly just dances from flower to flower and stays on the surface. The bumblebee is willing to do whatever to retrieve what it's after, right? It'll dig deep into the flower. It'll, it'll go as far as it needs to to get what it is trying to retrieve. And so which one are you when it comes to Bible study? Hopefully you're not a butterfly. As beautiful and as majestic as they are, They don't dig deep. They stay on the surface. Hopefully you're a bumblebee. Hopefully you're willing to go beneath the surface. Hopefully you're willing to dig. Hopefully you're a worker because it takes workers to study the Bible. Workers who are willing to dig deep to understand and to apply what God intends. You know, I'm a uh, detail-oriented person. Always have been. When I was coaching, I was very detail-oriented. Remember, You know, suicides or line drills where, you know, in basketball, uh, the coach would make you in order to get in shape or maybe to punish you, you would run down and and you would touch the line. You know, you'd go to the free throw line and then you go to the half court line and the other free throw line, then the end line and back. And you do this multiple times and wear you out. When we do things like that, I would always make the guys touch the line, bend over and actually touch the line. Don't touch it with your foot and don't do this. Don't bend over halfway. You have to touch the line. And if anybody didn't, we started over. And I know it drove them nuts. Why in the world is that important? Why do we have to touch the line? Because you need to learn to take care of the details. Because when it comes to winning or losing, the details are usually what causes you to get beat. And when it comes to Bible study, when it comes to life in general, when it comes to living the the life of a disciple, we need to take care of the details. We need to be willing to not take shortcuts, but to dig deep and to make certain that we are paying attention to those finer details, and paying attention to those finer details does take work. We're going to have to dig deeper. We're going to have to be a bumblebee and not a butterfly. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.